I'm Christopher Calloway. Welcome to Creator Talks. After an epic 40-year run, ElfQuest reached its conclusion this year with the final quest. On this episode, the creators of ElfQuest, Richard and Wendy Peeney, join me. Richard was a Marvel zombie back in the 1960s, and we talk about how he met Wendy through a Marvel comic. Wendy began creating her own stories when she was just two years old. Whatever happened to those stories that Wendy created as a child and her other work on ElfQuest? Wendy talks about her first published comic work and how she landed the job, and there was more success to follow. Wendy reflects on her television appearance on The Mike Douglas Show in 1977 and also what happened off-camera. Richard explains why he left his job at IBM to focus on ElfQuest and why it was necessary to found Warp Graphics. What important advice do Richard and Wendy give to artists about portfolio reviews and what lies ahead for Richard and Wendy and ElfQuest in 2019? And it wouldn't be Creator Talks without the fun questions I ask all my guests and Richard and Wendy Peeney tackle those. This episode is brought to you by The Comic Book Shop in Wilmington, Delaware, where comics are for everyone. Just be nice. And I believe they still have a copy of that first appearance of ElfQuest, Fantasy Quarterly number 1. If you're in the area, this is a chance to get that landmark first issue. And wrapping up 2018 of podcasts, my gift to you. One more present to open under the Christmas tree. My discussion with Richard and Wendy Peeney. Here now on Creator Talks. Wendy and Richard, welcome to Creator Talks. Hi, Chris. Hello, Chris. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks so much for making time to be on the show. I want to share with you, I had a couple of guests on a while back, Claire and Paige Conley. They're in New Jersey, and they're both artists. And I said, what's one book you want to read you haven't had a chance to read yet? And they said, oh, ElfQuest. We have to read ElfQuest. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yes, they do, or, they, or the Earth will fall off its axis. <laughs> I've been reading it. I like to always read what my creators are talking about. I like to go in there blind, right? And where I am now, I have the first nice thick volume in black and white of ElfQuest. And okay. it's just where Cutter and Skywise were hanging off the cliff, and Olbar pulls them up, and they're heading into the Forbidden Grove. And there's a lot ahead of me, I know, but that's where I am now. And that's all of ElfQuest you've ever read? I'm afraid that's all I've read so far. Then your questions are going to be very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you are such a noob. I know. Yeah. I'm, you know, what, 35 years behind. <laughs> yeah, you are. So we'll we'll do our best to catch you up without spoiling anything for you. Well, the way you two met, which ultimately put you on the road to making ElfQuest, was something that just wouldn't really happen today. What I'm referring to is the letter that, Richard, you read by Wendy in Silver Surfer Number 5 way back in 1968. And you began mm -hmm. corresponding. When people used to write letters, I used to do that too. I used to write letters for a number of years before you were married in 1972. And this was back when they put the full address in the letter page, which they don't do anymore. They don't even put the email address in. Hard to believe that. And people don't even really write letters anymore. Most of us email, text, tweet. What had you reading Silver Surfer, each one of you? Like, that's the way you met. What had you interested in that book that brought you together? It's not nearly so sublime as you might think. 
speaking only for myself, I was a Marvel zombie long before that term ever got coined. If it was Marvel, I bought it and I read it. Now, this was at a time when they had maybe 10 or 12 monthly uh, titles, so it was easy to do. And Silver Surfer, of course, had been introduced in um, the um, early years of the Fantastic Four, and he was an intriguing character, so he got his own title. So, of course, I was going to buy the title and read it. As to what caused me to respond to that particular letter, um, very simple. Two things. One, it was a very well-written, very well-reasoned letter. Uh, It spoke to humanity's seeming intolerance for that which is different. And of course, the surfer represented very much something that was different to your uh, average person on the street. So that intrigued me. Plus, it was written by a woman. And in 1969, when that issue came out, I dare say there were not very many girls who were reading comics. And I thought, well, this is cool. And since I was at MIT, which is essentially an all-guys school, I thought, what if I got to lose except the cost of a stamp by writing a letter to this Wendy Flesher, whoever she might be, and see what the heck happens? Well, from my point of view, I was not a Marvel zombie. I was pretty select in the books that I read. I was quite a fan of John Buscema and very much enjoyed Stan's writing, so that's what attracted me to the Silver Surfer title. And I got very involved in the storyline, and as a budding writer and artist myself, I was quite carried away by it, so I I wanted to write to Stan and just give my opinion on the direction the story was going, and I had no idea that I was going to receive something like 500 letters from guys all over the country who wanted to meet a girl who read comics. (laughs) But Richard stood out because of all of them, his was the one that said, I really liked what you had to say in your letter. But if you want to get to know me, you have to write me, and I promise you surprises await. Oh, okay. <laughs> you see, so he was very he was very clever in how he uh, sort of lured me in there. That's how the whole thing started. Were most of those letters that you received fairly positive? Oh, absolutely, but they were pretty typical fanboy letters. What color hair they had, how many pimples they had, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> this was the one that intrigued me, plus the return address of MIT didn't hurt. Ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, it's nice to hear that at least the letters were positive. I mean, today, with social media and message boards, somebody put something up there, harmless as it may be, or it might be something very nice, people respond with negative comments. It's, it's scary now to put your voice out there in writing, you know, it's, it's crazy. But that's nice to hear. It was a positive experience for everyone, especially you two. Back in the day, you had to make an effort to write a letter. Mm, mm-hmm. And even the letters, for example, this or that fanzine might receive that were negative, they were at least thought out. Now, all you have to do is vent your spleen on a keyboard, hit enter and send. You don't have to even think about it. And you don't think about where it's going or after it's gone. There's no consequence to it. And as a result, no content, no nothing of value. Yeah, back in the late 60s, people at least made an effort to be polite. I mean, we all feel certain ways. Uh, we might be having a bad day, but 
take the time to think before you send. I mean, no just... kidding. No, no yeah. kidding. I'm curious. Did you keep all of those letters that you wrote back and forth to each other? Have you ever gone back and read them? Because I am, uh, some people would say a pack rat and other more kind people would say archivist. I have all of the letters that we wrote back and forth. I have just kept everything connected with our relationship as well as ElfQuest's evolution and development. So we do have all of those letters, but I cannot recall the last time we opened up that big carton and just sat down and went through them. But I suspect we probably will. Well, we didn't just send letters. We also sent tapes and rather theatrically produced tapes. We would select bits of music that we thought were expressive of the emotions we were trying to get across. Our tapes were very nicely little staged. <laughs> little productions. Yes. <laughs> These were early mixtapes. <laughs> uh, or, if you will, really, really early podcasts. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> that is so cool. For an audience of one. What other comics were you reading at the time? Now, I know, Richard, being a Marvel zombie, you were probably reading all of them? I was reading all of them. And again, I'm not going to vouch for the accuracy of this. There might have been uh, Millie the Model or Patsy Walker or Archie type titles that I wasn't interested in. But anything that whiffed of uh, superheroes, yeah, I was reading it. And it was, as Wendy has said, you know, the writing and the artwork, the combinations of the writers and the artists was unlike anything that I had read heretofore. So uh, I just soaked it up every month. How about you, Wendy? Well, for me, uh, the titles that I was attracted to are the type of storytelling that women have always been attracted to. Uh, For me, it wasn't about who was the strongest or who could beat up who, you know, the thing or the Hulk or anything like that. I liked stories that had a sort of a family feeling to them. So I liked the Fantastic Four and the Avengers and the Inhumans. And also because I happened to like pointed ears, I followed the Submariner. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so like I said, I, I followed a few titles but I was not a rabid collector, shall we say. But you began writing at a very early age. I read like two years old. What kinds of things were you writing, I guess, much more like you were saying about relationships? Did you actually keep any? Once again, uh, we owe so much to Richard because uh, I did not have the kind of parents who uh, treasured the efforts of my childhood and my artwork and my writings ended up sort of stored away in an old tank house that was very moldy and mildewy, and they would have just kind of rotted away there if it hadn't been for Richard getting in there and rescuing them all. So now that stuff that wouldn't have survived has ended up being archived forever at Columbia University. I just think that's so ironic, stuff that I did when I was two, three years old is now at Columbia University. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Before you started doing ElfQuest, you had illustrated for Galaxy and Worlds of If magazines, and your first comic book, I believe, first comic work was Red Sonja 6. That's correct. And Roy Thomas wrote that one. Roy was my editor on that one. I wrote that one. Roy and Frank both invited me to write an issue of Red Sonja after... They were convinced, you see, when Frank and I 
and Richard did the Red Sonia and the Wizard show for a couple of years and toured around conventions. The script for the show was largely mine. There was a lot of improv, but any part of it that was written that were lines we had to repeat to each other, that was me. I wrote the script. So this is how both Roy Thomas and Frank Thorne gained confidence in me as a writer and invited me to write an issue of Red Sonia. And it turned out quite well, and uh, I was treated very well, and I really appreciated it. But that was my first professional work in comics, not artwork, but uh, writing. You wanted something that was yours, that wasn't owned by a corporation, so hence the quest began, ElfQuest. That whole story is quite an experience, and uh, you know we've told it a number of times. ElfQuest almost didn't survive that initial publishing experience because you said something a few moments ago we wanted to do something that was ours and that's true wendy has been telling stories about families and quests and searches all her life elfquest is the crystal distillation of all of those thoughts but i didn't want to be a publisher at the time i didn't know a thing about it so we actually approached marvel and dc they turned it down we approached a couple other uh, smaller independent companies they turned it down the publisher who finally did put it out there almost ripped us off for all the uh, money that was owed us as well as the first two issues worth of wendy's artwork so that's when it really became uh we'd better do it ourselves because that's the only way we can be sure we're doing it the way we want. The second issue, you had a print run of about 10,000 copies, which at the time wasn't a lot, which is funny because today there are plenty of comics out there. Whoa. (laughs) Excuse me. At the time, 10,000 copies was ridiculous. People were not doing that in independent comics. Oh, not in indie, no. No, the independent comics movement had just started. And so for a couple of tyros like Richard and me to jump in with both feet and launch ElfQuest with a run of 10,000 was pretty ridiculous. This was at a time when you had Marvel and DC and you had fanzines and you had a few independent titles, but the independent titles were selling in the you know hundreds or thousands and we just jumped off the deep end of the pool with 10,000 and uh, issue number two came out at 20,000, 30,000, 40,000. By the time we were done, we were doing over 100,000 right off the press. And that's more than some of the, you know, Marvel's uh, X-Men or DC's Batman titles were doing at the time. Oh, yeah. No, my point was that you know, you're both pioneers at Indie Comics. I mean, having that kind of print run, the growth that you experienced over time, very quickly, rather, from the fan base who really connected with the book, 10,000, 20,000. Today, it's like, oh, that's low, but still a good number for a lot of books today because we don't have the numbers we used to have back then. Absolutely. People line up on their knees hoping they'll be able to sell 20,000. <laughs> right. What I find fascinating is not only that you had such success, and you are very successful with this, but the chance that you took early on, like Richard, you were working at IBM and quit your job. You wanted to see this succeed and have complete control over it and have it done the way you wanted it done at the quality level you needed it done and that it should be done. And what were your feelings at the time? I mean, this was a big chance you were taking. Any sleepless nights about that? Obviously, in hindsight, it all worked out. But at that time, how were you feeling? I was working at IBM, as you say, and back in the late 70s, early 80s, that was a very cushy job. 
The benefits were spectacular. The pay was quite nice. And I had the decision because by then ElfQuest was up to issue five or six or so, and it was selling well. But I had the decision to make, do I stick with IBM, which was a full-time and more job, and try to fit ElfQuest in my off hours. Now, ElfQuest was also taking more and more of my time. It was taking all of Wendy's time because she was just putting so much work into the artwork and the stories. It came down to, I cannot do both. So which am I going to do? And I figured, you know, IBM might survive without me, but I don't think ElfQuest would. So again, it was a leap of faith. And fortunately, I've never had to look back. About your fan base, what your fans' initial reaction was back in 1978, what kind of feedback were you getting, either word of mouth or through correspondence? Well, ElfQuest attracted a kind of fandom that was quite different from typical comics fandom of the time. We attracted a very large female audience, and because I had already had a reputation as a science fiction and fantasy artist, I had followers already. These people followed me to ElfQuest, and these were great readers. These were people who did not read comics so much. They read science fiction and fantasy novels. They were fans of McCaffrey and Niven and Paul Anderson and Michael Moorcock and so forth. So right off the bat, ElfQuest attracted an unusual readership. It was about half and half, maybe a few more women than men, and also not typical comic book readers. We did get a lot of letters. There was no internet, there was no email, there was no social media. This was, you know, very late 70s. And right on up through the 80s, we got a lot of letters through the mail. And that was our main source of feedback. We began to discover, Wendy may have known about this before I did because she was into fandom before I was, but there are also fanzines out there that carried reviews of new comics that came out. We got very, very nicely, positively reviewed in, I think every single review we got, save one, was glowingly positive. So feedback came in the form of letters from people that were just amazing to us because people just loved ElfQuest and uh, the reviews that we read in fanzines. Now, of your fans, did any become combo creators inspired by your work? Have you met any over the years? Sure, that's easy. We used to have a fan club and various divisions of that fan club would have what was called Holtz in different parts of the country and actually overseas as well. Fans would get together and they would form their own ElfQuest reading and discussion group and they would do their fan art and their fanfic and a lot of them published their own little fanzines. And among the people who did that for a while was Jill Thompson, who has gone on to gain enormous fame with her work on Wonder Woman and all of her Eisner Awards and for Scary Godmother. Plus, um, when we attend conventions and we're sitting at a table or we're sitting at a signing autographing session, we often have people come up to us who are either in the comics or actually more frequently who are in animation or movie production or some 
niche in Hollywood. And we know their work, and they come up and say to us, hi, I'm such and so, and I'm the producer of this or that. And we go, oh my, very pleased to meet you. And they say, well, you know, I'm where I am because I grew up reading ElfQuest, and I wanted to do this kind of work. Yes, one of those is the creator of Lilo and Stitch, Chris Sanders. He let us know that he sort of grew up reading ElfQuest. It inspired his interest in cartoons and animation. It's like we have all of these aesthetic kids out there that we never knew we had. (laughs) (laughs) Today we have Kickstarter campaigns, Patreon, webcomics, all kinds of ways to self-publish in the 21st century. You started before these platforms even existed. For those thinking about self-publishing, what have you learned that you could share that goes beyond taking advantage of the platforms I just mentioned. What else do people need to know and prepare themselves for? Oh, Lord, you know, we have been asked that a lot, and I wish it were a simpler answer to give. The world, the conditions are so different now than they were then. Back then, there was room for just about anything anyone wanted to do. It was the Wild West. It was the great unexplored territory. It was throw a stone out there and see what kind of ripples it makes in that great ocean. As you point out, there are many avenues to step up to the plate. There are many ways to try. I think the thing you have to develop more than anything else these days, speaking back to something we were talking about earlier, is the ability to deal with the kinds of feedback, the kinds of reaction that you're going to get, whatever you choose to do, because it's a very different mindset with regard to getting reactions and getting feedback than it ever was back in uh, when we started. Well, and reactions and feedback also relates to editors, publishers, people that you have the opportunity to meet in abundance at comic conventions. Back when we started, comic conventions were quite rare. They were just getting off the ground. Now you have one or two a week at least all over the country and and in Europe as well. So there are many, many opportunities for you to get out there and actually meet publishers meet the various representatives of the various mainstream comics, the indie comics, to present yourself. And you have to have a portfolio that is well organized and shows your best work. You should never bring anything to an editor or an art director to show them that you have to explain. They should be able to just open your portfolio and flip through it and know exactly what they're seeing and evaluate it on their own. Once you hand your portfolio to an art director or an editor, just shut up (laughs) and let them make their own decision about your work and then listen to what they have to say, even if it's hard to hear. It will be important to you later on to take in what they have to tell you. I guess it's like a resume. You know, you're going to have a few seconds when someone's going to actually look at that 
That's and it's right. got to be very clear. You know, if anything's muddled, yes. forget it. So you only have those few seconds to grab their attention. And we've had people come up, bless them. They didn't know. But we've had uh, hopefuls come up to us and open up their portfolio and not only explain, as Wendy said, don't do, but apologize. I'm sorry, I didn't have time to do my best or I didn't finish this. And my God, don't go into a job interview. Don't open up your artistic soul in front of somebody and then apologize. You're there to present your best, to be confident, even if you don't feel it on the inside. As she said, put down your work, step back, smile, and shut up. Absolutely. And if I grant you an audience, if I say, okay, let me see your portfolio, and you start telling me that it's not your best work, or uh, that you need to explain this or that, I will simply close the portfolio and hand it back to you. And most art directors and editors would do the same. They'll say, come back when you're going to show me your best. You've done a lot for creators. And as you mentioned earlier, all your work's been archived, a lot of your work's been archived, I should say, at Columbia University. So the students can review it, including your chain mail that you wore on the Mike Douglas show. Yes. I watched that YouTube video. It's out there on YouTube, I should say. It's not a YouTube video. It's just amazing because I've just, it's so long ago, you know, Phil Sulig's sitting there and he's got all these old comics from the golden age, like that are hundreds yes. of thousands of dollars. And they're like, not in a bag on the board like we do today, just like holding them up, you know. Yes. And Jamie mm-hmm. Farr's there. And I was impressed how much Jamie Farr knew about comics. And he was sincere. Jamie was a geek. <laughs> Jamie was and still is a geek. Yes. I encourage people to see that video. It'll just blow your mind. And uh, and that was your big moment. That was Wendy Meets the Mike Douglas Show. And, well, and I can tell you a green room story. While I was waiting to go on, while they were interviewing Phil and I was in the back in the green room, there was Fabian was one of the guests. I don't think he knew what to make of me in the full Red Sonia regalia, and then General Westmoreland came in. He had a phone call, and I was just standing there. And any time I was in the Sonia costume, I was in character. I would relate to everybody as if I really was Sonia, because it was important to me to create a reality, a sense of reality around the character. And so General Westmoreland is talking on the phone, and he kind of looks me up and down, and after he hung up, he said, I didn't realize we were at war. (laughs) (laughs) That was a lot of fun. And the surprise on Mike Douglas was that uh, he had contacted Phil Suling because the Comic-Con was in Philadelphia that time of year and that year. And um, Mike Douglas wanted to do a little segment on it. So he got in touch with Phil, asked Phil, can you have a superhero appear on the show? And Phil impishly said, of course. Now, we know Phil forever because he was one of our two very first distributors. We knew him a long time. So Phil got in touch with us and asked if Wendy would dress up as Red Sonia and be the superhero. Mike Douglas was expecting Batman or Captain America or something (laughs) along those lines. He was shocked, as I understand it, kind of offended. He was very worried that my costume uh, would upset his Midwestern audience. His base. His base. (laughs) So... (laughs) <laughs> Different times. <laughs> Different, Different times. Yeah. Now, do I understand correctly that you have or plan to make 
appearances at public libraries, possibly even in my area, which is on the East Coast in Delaware? Oh, heavens. Well, we are just wrapping up. This is, you know, 2018 is lurching to a close. And we are wrapping up our 40th anniversary year, and we've done a lot of appearances. We want to continue to make appearances. We have all throughout ElfQuest's existence done appearances at libraries, at schools, given demonstrations and talks, and that we don't have any expectation is going to stop. We have not made any plans as of yet, except for, well, we just found out that we were invited as guests to next year's San Diego Comic-Con, their big number 50, and we've been invited as guests to that. So that one we know about, but the rest of the year is open. Yes, and I will say that it's a good thing that it's open right now because we have reason to believe, although we can't say anything right now, that our time is going to be tight next year. So we may not be making anywhere near as many appearances next year as we did this year for good reasons. Well, then I'm glad I saw you in Baltimore this year when I had the chance. (laughs) Baltimore was a lot of fun. It was our first time in many, many years at Baltimore, and we had a blast. Yes, we'll come back anytime they want us. Wonderful. Yeah, I like that one, too. It's uh, very creator-friendly, very easy to get up and meet people. You're not, like, squished in like sardines. Yeah, it's great. Very much so. Now, if someone hasn't read ElfQuest yet, a great place to start, as I mentioned earlier, is the um, nice, thick, phone book size Dark Horse editions. Now, these stories have been colored. Uh, and Marvel did some of those decades ago. So they're both in black and white in color. People can take their choice. Glorious in color. In your opinion, what do you recommend? The original black and white art, which I like seeing all the detail, or the color version? Um, yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what Richard would say. Um, I lean a little bit more towards color. I've been uh, digitally drawing and coloring ElfQuest since about 2001. I find that being able to do the work digitally enables me to do color effects that are very delicate and magical that really kind of elevate certain scenes in ElfQuest that I wouldn't be able to do in black and white. Wendy has often said that she ultimately, when she was growing up and learning how to use color and paint and so on, she wanted to paint with light. And painting on a piece of paper, you're using pigment, it's reflective, whereas uh, a computer monitor is transmissive. Once she started doing digital, then she was truly painting with light, and she has done some amazing adaptations of the original artwork. I like both for different reasons. I watched every page of the black and white art being drawn, and there's just something magical about all of that line work. There is something magical about seeing the choices that Wendy makes when she can actually paint with light. And the thing about the digital world we live in is that you have the opportunity to do both. You can see the black and white line work reproduced very nicely in the Dark Horse books. You can find older reprints of the color work. You can go online to our website, elfquest.com, and see wherever it exists in color. We have uploaded every page up until Final Quest for people to read and catch up on for free. You have a smorgasbord of choices. 
I have seen the uh, colored artwork online. Yes. So, and it is a different experience. It is gorgeous. Uh, so I have that to look forward to as well. I'm going to read in black and white first, and I'll go back and compare. <laughs> okay. You do that. There'll be a quiz. It bears a second reading. You wrapped up after 40 years. It's not going away. It's going to continue. There'll be other people working on it with your approval and guidance. Is there just a hint of what we might see in the future? Yes, I can give you this hint. It will have elves. (laughs) That we can be sure of. Well, think about it. We've wrapped up a 40-year story arc. Without spoiling anything, certain characters have concluded what we call their hero's journeys. But there are many other characters, important characters, whose stories are not yet finished. And even as we speak, Wendy and I are working on the next arc that will address one of those storylines. What do you plan to do for the holidays that are just around the corner now? Any traditions that you like to partake in? No traditions. We're going to do something very untraditional. We are going to go visit some live wolves on a wolf preserve out in the Mojave Desert. Everybody complains about the stress of the holidays and the commercialization of the holidays, and we just decided this year we have put off this great psychic weight that we were carrying and uh, we want to get a little bit back to nature back to the real primitive world yes uh, you may have heard about the uh, terrible wildfires in the los angeles area just a few weeks ago we were actually affected by those fires and so we're also going to be exploring what to do with some of the damage to our yard and our orchard Uh, maybe come up with some creative ideas to uh, put a Band-Aid on all that. Well, I wish you the best with that. That was just terrible. Yeah, thank you. I have some fun questions that I ask all my guests. If you'd like to tackle some of those, give you a chance to each answer the questions. Sure. Is this like the actor's studio? I guess kind of, yeah. Yeah, sort of. Okay, (laughs) sure. For each of you, what is the oddest job you've ever had outside of comics? The oddest job I ever had outside of comics was a summer job while I was in high school, and I was a clerk at a women's shoe store. And however you've seen that portrayed on TV and movies, the eeriness of it, the strangeness of it doesn't come close to the reality of it. (laughs) What are some of the weird things that would happen? I've signed non-disclosure agreements, and um, I'm not at liberty to say. It had to do with feet. (laughs) (laughs) For For me, my oddest job, which wasn't odd to me, but others might think so, was I was a semi-professional belly dancer. That's a lot of work. I'll tell you, I went to a a traditional Moroccan restaurant and saw the belly dancer there. That is a lot of work, man. (laughs) (laughs) That is a lot of work, but boy, does it get you in shape. That's, (laughs) That's what got me in shape to do the Red Sonia gig. For each of you, either separately or together, What do you like to do for rest and relaxation? Rest and relax. She beat me to it by half a second. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be visiting the wolves, but one thing that we do like to do is simply get in the car, point it in a direction that we haven't gone in a while, and go until we decide to turn back. We, you know, exploring new little roads or taking uh, the path less traveled. It's very soothing to both mind and soul. Yes. Thinking back to a birthday, any birthday, 
What was memorable about it? Why does it stand out in your mind? Oh, wow. Well, for me, this would be a recent birthday. This would be my 65th birthday a couple of years ago. And I had all the faces I love there. Just a whole bunch of people that I consider more family than friends were there. And it was phenomenal to be surrounded by them. I think I treasure the family that I have made for myself uh, more than anything else in the world. So my 65th birthday was a very, very memorable one for me. And for me, I'll just provide some comedic counterpoint and say that it was many, many of them stand out in my memory for reasons very similar to what Wendy has said. When you get people that you care about together, it's wonderful. But just because this is a podcast, I'll say my 30th, because we had about two, two and a half dozen people from IBM over to our house, and it's the party where I learned about beer pong. <laughs> and I will say no okay. more. Yeah. <laughs> well, before you were of legal drinking age, back when you were in middle school, thinking back, what posters or pictures did you put on your bedroom wall? I never did. Neither did I. Wow, that's the first time I've ever had that answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's because we're probably older than a lot of people you interview. Back in the late 60s and earlier, that wasn't a thing. I think Farrah Fawcett was the first one to start it in the 70s. Well, you know, it's funny because I can remember in that time period, Marvel put out some really psychedelically day-glow-colored posters of Doctor Strange and mm -hmm. the Silver Surfer, and I remember those posters. I may even still have some of those posters that I collected, never put up on the wall. But no, um, I was never one to uh, mm -mm. to do that. No, I, I mean, every once in a while I would hang up a piece of artwork <clears throat> that I had done, but uh, posters, no. Well, this question's hypothetical. If you were stuck on a desert island... What is the one book you'd want to have for pleasure? Something for fun, something to help pass the time until you eventually do get off the island. And it can be anything. It can be a comic. It can be a graphic novel. It can be a novel. I would want Richard Peeney's Eisner Award-nominated The Line of Beauty. <laughs> <laughs> How do I follow that? <laughs> No, I suppose if you're going to press me to the wall and have me pick one, there is a um, somewhat lesser-known book by the writer Philip Wiley called The Disappearance. And it's a kind of fantastic science-fictional examination of what happens to the world when, from the point of view of all of the men, all the women suddenly disappear and on a parallel world, from the point of view of all the women, all the men suddenly disappear. And what happens? It's a little heavy-handed in the writing at times, but it had a great effect on me when I first read it. I've read it several times since. And I think maybe in these tumultuous times when not only there's stress and strife between and among genders and races and ethnicities and whatever else, 
I would want to turn to it again. Very good. Now, another hypothetical. If a toy company were to make action figures of each one of you, what would be your accessory? Um, a red editing pencil the size of a bazooka. <laughs> <laughs> a peacock feather. A peacock feather, not a sword. Okay. No. Peacock feathers are strong symbols in my work. They represent many things, so a peacock feather would be the appropriate accessory for my doll. All right. Now, back to reality. When you are resting and relaxing, what is your beverage of choice? Oh, that's tough. That's tough because there are different forms of R and R. And Wendy makes a fantastic chai, hot chai tea drink. And that really, really warms the inner soul. Other than that, a good Belgian ale. Mm, okay. For me, it's a martini called a village heat. You can only get it in one place in the town where we're based, out here on the West Coast. And the recipe is a carefully guarded secret. But it is a magnificent herbal and jalapeno-flavored martini that is hard to describe. You just have to experience it. Jalapeno. Okay. (laughs) Yes, jalapeno. Yeah. Yeah, I would not have expected that either, but when she introduced me to this, it was, whoa. (laughs) Now, today, I was cleaning out my closet, and I was pulling a lot of old technology out of it, old like uh, cassette adapters for CD players and cars and stuff like that. And I'm wondering, what technology we no longer use do you miss the most? It's not missing. I don't miss it because anything that we used to have that did a job, we have things now that do that job much more efficiently, much more effectively. But in the nostalgia category, I can remember an old RCA cassette tape recorder. And this was when the cassettes themselves were about the size and thickness of a thin hardcover novel. So they were not the things that you had all over the floor of your car when you were driving along. And it also had something called a magic eye that was a tube that glowed And it acted like a meter to tell you how loud the signal was coming in. And it was very science fictional. It was a brilliant turquoise green light. And it glowed and fluctuated sort of like Gort when he was getting ready to blast you. (laughs) So I would say I miss that. If I had that again, I would play with it. But, uh, you know, I don't miss the functionality that we have today. Okay. How about you, Wendy? Oh, I think just because it was an old friend, and it's in the vein of what Richard just said, I miss my old reel-to-reel tape recorder on which I used to record favorite snatches of music from favorite TV series or movies, or uh, I would record my uh, voice letters to Richard on it. You know, it was just a friend that I used every single day, and uh, I remember when it finally conked out, I I was really sad. (laughs) (laughs) 
hopefully with more time at some point, you're still very busy, you're going to get a chance to do more traveling if money were no object. Where would you like to travel either you know in the U.S. or overseas, someplace you've never been to that you really want to go visit? Oh, we often talk about Italy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, because my family on both sides comes from the old country. We've talked about going there and maybe making a trek back to the little town in northern Italy where where at least half my family came from. It's funny, you know, in doing ElfQuest, we've been in imagination to worlds that simply don't and couldn't exist on this planet. And we've had a lot of fun there. So coming back here, it's kind of hard. There's probably a hundred places we would love to go to, given the time to think about it. But we don't think about it these days because we're still on the world of two moons. Well, Richard is speaking for himself. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) One of the wonderful things about doing ElfQuest is that we've been invited and have had the chance to travel the world some. We had a marvelous time in France uh, earlier this year in January uh, at the Angoulême Comics Festival. And we've been to Japan. We've been to... Germany and Brussels, and I think we spent a little time in Bavaria, and we've been to Britain, we've been to England and Scotland, and so all of this in connection with ElfQuest and because of ElfQuest. So ElfQuest has been a great gift to us in showing us the wonders of this world, and unlike Richard, I don't live in the world of two moons. <laughs> I've, I very much live here <laughs> unless I have a deadline. <laughs> well, ElfQuest has been a great gift to all of us readers. And oh. my final question, you've been asked a lot of questions about ElfQuest. You've probably been asked everything under the sun in the past 40 years. What's one question that someone has not asked you yet? Something you want people to know about you, but it just hasn't come up in an interview. Know about us? Mm-hmm. Something you want them to know that just hasn't come up during an interview. What question would we want to be asked that no one has yet asked? Correct. Would you like that in tens or twenties? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to touch that one. I think that's the that is the one to close that's, on. <laughs> perfect. Wendy and Richard, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Thank you for the time, and uh, we will look forward to catching this when it's available. Coming up next week and kicking off 2019, Jeff Rugby. Jeff is the writer of Gunning for Hits being published through Image Comics, and Jeff is tapping his experience with the legendary singer and songwriter David Bowie. So we'll be starting off the new year with that interview. And there is much more to come in 2019. The show is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon Alexa Dot, and Echo devices. And you can stream the audio through YouTube. If you have a chance, please leave a rating and or review on iTunes. It goes a long way to helping the show. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at contact at creatortalks.com. That's contact at creatortalks.com, the best way to reach me. To keep up with what's going on, you can follow me on Facebook or on Twitter at creatortalkspod. That's at creatortalkspod. I'm also on Instagram at creatortalkspod, where I post my Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze Age comics from my collection. I think next year I might also start posting some pop culture memorabilia that's not necessarily comic book, but comic book related. 
But don't miss a single episode of the podcast. Simply subscribe to it. It's free. Up-and-coming comics creators and veterans will be on the show next year. I hope you had a wonderful holiday and enjoy the next several days before the new year rings in. I know I'm going to take the next several days to reset and prepare for 2019. And I'll be back here next year, every Thursday. And thank you for listening. For Creator Talks, this has been Christopher Calloway. Until next time.